Hello, and welcome to Books in the Corner, the podcast where me and my friends reread our childhood favorites and discuss how they continue to impact us today. In this week's episode, I'm joined by another one of my dear friends to discuss C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian. Hello, and welcome back to Books in the Corner, where I make my friends drag out their childhood books and we talk about them um, for fun. I'm Lissy, and today I am joined by my dear friend Theo. Oh! Yay! I'm so excited (laughs) to have Theo here. We are going to talk about Prince Caspian, and there is a lot that... I noticed there's like like a lot of like deep kind of uncomfortable topics that I noticed in this book so I'm excited to see what your thoughts are but first um do you have like a fun childhood memory specifically attached to this book or just to like the world of Narnia in general well I loved Narnia growing up I read it so so much but Caspian in particular, I think I, this might have been my awakening when I was little, but like I, I remember playing Caspian in a little, like acting out Narnia with my friends and that was just fantastic. So that's yes. my memory. Yes, I think, I think me and my cousins like reenacted the storming the castle scene from the movie. Yes. Like so many times. I didn't realize how many of my memories of the book actually came from the movie. Yes. Because the Prince Caspian movie is actually my favorite of the movies. Hmm. But the Prince Ca- Prince Caspian is not my favorite of the books. I see. Um, you actually showed me the Prince Caspian movie. Yes, we watched it together a few months ago. Uh, and that was really mm-hmm. fun. Um, yeah. But, yeah, like, Caspian, I'm, s- like, so shocked. Like, Caspian is not in the book, like, at all. Except for like three, right. three, he's in it for three chapters, and then the rest is from the Pevensey's perspective, which yeah. I did not realize how little he was actually in the book. Yeah, it's very much a story about him, not like from him, it yeah. feels like. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. What were like some things that really stood out to you reading it at this, like, as an adult now? As an adult, there's a lot of themes. I, I keep forgetting I'm an adult. But I know, there's right? There's a lot of themes that stand out. Yeah. <laughs> that are just like deeper. Like, like so, you know, in the last battle, uh, there's that whole the end scene that I won't go into because I'm sure you're going to talk about it on a different podcast episode. But you kind of see some of uh, Lewis's theology play into this. Like yeah. he ta- he talks about Greek gods and he talks about pagan ideology and stuff. Yeah, and that was really yeah. interesting to me because usually Christian authors will just stay away from that stuff. Yeah, so that was really interesting. The racism that is in this book, yes. like just the internalized xenophobia and all of that. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just so much. Yeah, I so much. also like the. I don't. It wasn't quite like assimilation. But, like, the assimilation of the dwarves, where it talks about a lot of the dwarves Mm. dressing up, putting on high heels, and cutting their beards and pretending to be men just to, like, survive, was, like, so 
like I never picked up on that before. Yeah. And that's a genuine thing that people of different uh, races or cultural backgrounds have to live with now. Um, yes. So I don't know. It's yeah. And this book in particular, I feel like, well, maybe other than in the last or not the last battle in the silver chair, um, I feel like has the most Celtic mysticism in mm. it because there's in Celtic mysticism, there's a lot in like relation to the moon and the stars. And this book talks mm. a lot about like the moon, what is like the two planets aligning or something like that. And that, like, phrase of, what is it, like, the Lady Alambil and the Lord something, like, are yes. joining together. And that's repeated quite a few times. It is. I mean, you've got the centaurs always talking about it. Like, they seem to be the wisest beings out there in this book. Yeah. And so, centaurs always bringing that up. That's just kind of, like, wow. Like, he's, Lewis has actually taken his like symbols of wisdom and made them into not just like strict like oh i love aslan who is of course jesus yeah but they are also drawing like their wisdom from the world around them yeah which is really interesting to me yeah there's even a, there's a specific line where in like i i've been referring to it as i've been reading through this as like the montage sequence of like caspian growing up where he's like learning and he's under the He's, like, being tutored by Cornelius, and he says that um, he also started learning by looking at his surroundings, and he observed, like, that the Narnian, or, like, Narnia was not a happy country, and that his uncle was, like, not a fair ruler. So it's, it's a lot of, like, it's this message of it's important to also, to not blindly follow instructions. So, yes. like, really observe your surroundings. Um, and sometimes there's a lot more you can learn from doing that than what you learn in, like, a classroom or from Absolutely. family members. Yeah, even, even like, Cornelius, of course, is, like, based. Like, this, this guy, he's, like, he knows what he's doing. He is a dwarf, yeah. so he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, he doesn't just feed to Caspian, like, here, this is what you should believe. He just gives him an alternative option of believing other things mm -hmm. and then lets Caspian decide for himself. And Caspian is like, hey, I've heard about this happy Narnia and I've seen this not happy Narnia. Maybe there's something wrong here. And yeah. he's holding those two ideas in tension. And that's really interesting. Yeah. I will say reading through this did make me really question my parents judgment in terms of like did you ever hear the argument of like you can't read harry potter because it has magic in it but you can read Narnia ah, yes. because it's like jesus magic right <laughs> but like there's a lot more talk in this book of like the narnians themselves specifically the dwarves being able to do yeah. magic and not like bad magic but like Cornelius himself is like a bit of a magician and right. when uh Peter is talking about um them planting the orchard um outside the gates he talks about um a wood nymph coming and like casting a spell over the trees and stuff so like there's again again it's like not just the Celtic mysticism but there's more of a sense in this book of like Whereas in, like, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's, like, magic is, like, kind of dark and, like, because it's all associated right. with the White Witch. In this book, 
it's like, oh no, the Narniums themselves are also doing magic, and it's all like it's it's a, it's a normal thing. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the arguments of like, I don't know. So I think of using. Okay, to backtrack, we've got like, I don't want to make this political, but we've got like natural make, healing make methods. It, make it political. Earth. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we've got natural healing methods here on Earth, and we've got things like vaccines and antibiotics and stuff like that. Yeah. And it reminds me of the argument. I mean, you've got people who are against antihistamines and all those things, like mm -hmm. the the more like chemical healings and then you've got people who are against like the natural healing things and to me this balance in narnia where they use of course they're i mean they talk about the digging of the orchard and the planting of the orchard like everything is actually physical but they also talk about the spell and yeah. it just reminds me of like using what you have like in narnia magic is in the air like mm -hmm. remember the lamp the lamppost like yeah. growing out of a yeah yeah like it's just part of the surroundings there i guess mm -hmm. so it reminds me of that that middle ground when people say yes you should use like aspirin which is from willows willow bark to treat like a headache but you should also use a vaccine to treat this thing that you need a vaccine for yeah it just reminds me of using like what you have available mm -hmm. okay this this is a bit of a side tangent but also not really i <laughs> as a younger sibling as the youngest sibling <laughs> In mm -hmm. my family, my favorite thing about Lucy was that it is like said in The Horse and His Boy that she's also a warrior. She fights, she goes to war with Peter and with Edmund, and she's like the best archer in all of Narnia, even compared as being better, a better archer than Susan is. And yet, when they go back to Narnia now in Prince Caspian, like, she doesn't have a weapon. She's never part of the battle. Even in yeah. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which, like, understandably in the beginning, because, like, it's their first time in Narnia and they're still kids. But, like, sh she and Susan are never part of the battle. But then, like, yeah. like in The Horse and His Boy, you get this description of her of being this like awesome strong badass warrior and it's such so it's such a missed opportunity um in the movies because oh. they never bring that fact into the movies hmm. even in the don treader movie um like she does get a little bit more of like action sequences but she's like something happens to her immediately and she like drops her dagger or is like kidnapped or whatever and then it's this mm. whole thing but like she gives me she and susan both give me either like awesome badass lesbian vibes or just like awesome badass asexual vibes and i'm here for it and i love it pretty sure edmund yeah. is some kind of queer but peter is like straight as a brick here's the token straight yes. yeah <laughs> Yeah. Yes, I agree with that so much. Like, I haven't even seen all the movies, but Lucy, I mean, even in the, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, they say, like, it is a bad thing when a woman sees battle or whatever. Yeah. So, like, I understand where he's coming from, because back in those days, if a woman had to fight, that would mean you were on your last defenses and stuff, like, yeah. and weren't supposed to fight. They weren't supposed to have to fight. Yeah. But, um, of course, as a little kid, born as a woman, I was like, 
this is makes me so angry yeah <laughs> yeah and i always just because like in like in my family especially being so much younger than everybody else i like my opinions were silenced so many times and so that like that frustration i felt in reading line the witch in the wardrobe when none of the siblings believed lucy and then that frustration yeah. the fact that like even in this book, on on page three, when they first are transported, the first thing Lucy says is, do you think we're in Narnia? Like, we must be back in Narnia. And then Peter's like, well, I don't know, we could be anywhere. Yes. And then on page 16, Peter's like, okay, we have to start using our heads. We're in Narnia. And it's like, Lucy said that like 10, 12 pages ago. And it's like, yes. it's so frustrating to me that she's, both she and Susan, no matter how, like, strong they're portrayed as, or, like, no matter how many times they're described in their adulthood as being, like, really strong warriors or diplomats or whatever, like, when they're in the bodies of their childhood selves, they're still, like, pushed off to the side quite a bit. Um, And what I really liked... Which I think is why I love the Prince Caspian movie so much, because Susan is like part of the battles, and she's yes. so cool. It is the coolest so cool. thing, and I still wish that like Lucy had done more in the movies with that, other than just like stay back at the table. But um, yeah, I think uh, if Netflix ever does that show, I really hope they show more of Warrior Lucy. <laughs> yes that would be great but what you're saying about lucy noticing things like that's what she does mm -hmm. uh i had i remember i did delete my notes this morning on accident but i remember one of my notes was like lucy is the, always the one to notice things especially in the first few yes. things the first few pages she notices first she notices hey we might be in narnia and then she's like she sees a stream she's like hey what's that and everyone's like a stream yeah <laughs> and then she sees like what else does she see she sees the wall yeah that, of, the, of the castle and like every time she like has this idea but because she's so like innocent almost like mm -hmm. people see her as innocent yeah they're like oh it can't be you're not right you're not correct you can't be like you're not wiser than we are especially when she's like a little kid yeah in her body yeah of course i don't know how like the mind aging stuff works because you've just lived an entire life in narnia and yeah. now you're back in a child but yeah and that's yeah. like that's something even within like when they first get to narnia in this book and they're like trying to figure out like they they have memories of going to narnia but like the memories of like when things happened or what things happened seem to be kind of skewed a little bit somehow yeah um because like it even says like how like how susan was like a fantastic swimmer um, and then there's this line, because they're trying to get across the, like, the, they're trying to get off the island. And yes. Lucy's like, or Peter's like, so someone is like, why don't, we could we just swim. But Susan's yes. the only one who's really good at that. Edmund and Lucy, you two can't even swim at all. And then Lucy's like, but we could swim when we were in Narnia. We could swim and we could ride and we could fight. 
And then mm -hmm. suddenly Edmund has this epiphany of like, oh, I know what's going on now. It's been like hundreds of years for them, but it's been one year for us because when we were in Narnia, we had a whole life, but then we became kids again. So it's like, like they were able to do all these things in Narnia that for whatever reason, not even, not even just like kingly and queenly things like being diplomatic and like fighting wars and stuff, but basic life skills like being able to swim <laughs> somehow they I forgot mean, when they went back to england yeah. and that's something like it changes throughout the series quite a bit in terms of like what things they remember and what like how it all works and it doesn't entirely make sense a lot of the time right yeah yeah i would say it doesn't make sense almost at all because mm -hmm. like like, yes, on the one hand, time passes faster in Narnia, and we understand that. But on the other hand, like, what about muscle memory? What about, I mean, in the Prince Caspian movie, it opens up with a fight scene. Yeah. And then we wonder, like, is this because Peter and Edmund are like, I once was a prince or a king or mm -hmm. whatever, and I therefore can't be insulted by the likes of you? Or yeah. is it because, like, like, wouldn't they have learned diplomacy and not to fight people in train stations? Yeah. Well, that, that I actually something so there are a lot of details like when you really read through the series there are a lot of details that are left out that mm -hmm. like is weird because you remember certain things about narnia that aren't even in the books and some things that aren't even in the movies and a big part of that was because c.s lewis wrote these to he he created them in a sense that like he wrote enough down to create these this world and create these characters but he left enough out because he wanted a lot of the story to be built by the reader's imagination. And so there's um, a lot about the world of Narnia that we all remember that canonically didn't even really happen. Right. <laughs> and a lot of, for me, the main thing that I always felt when reading the books that is not in the books at all is like the emotional, like any emotions connected to the things that the Pevensies are going through because like mm. like Peter and Edmund and Lucy must have had some form of PTSD from being in wars and like yeah. like again like they did all of these things and just to then just go back like they lived a full life poor Edmund and Lucy had to go through puberty twice because they yeah. were like nine and ten when they when they left um in the first book and so like that does something to you and i think that's something that the movies did really well and with that that fight in the train station brought in those emotions that someone would have because that was all like peter having this pent-up frustration of being treated like a kid even though he was literally a king for like however many years yeah yeah because we know that they lived there for years and years and years like mm -hmm. they had successful wars we have an entire book on what they well not what they did but adjacent to what they did yeah while they were ruling narnia uh yeah yeah that must like just the weight of the world on your shoulders mm -hmm. because first off ruling we can have a whole another discussion about like whether or not monarchs should be a thing. Oh, yeah. But like in Narnia, in Narnia, we'll just say this is this is how it's gonna work. Yeah. And um, the weight of ruling that, especially 
never like most monarchs are grown like from a young age they're taught that they will have the throne at least yeah at least like most european monarchs Mm -hmm. except for the ones that are like oh i'm now going to invade your country and now i'm the king now i'm the queen yeah but you know you know what i'm saying yeah um and so these are kids these are literal kids i mean one of them draws his sword for the first time in the Line the wish in the wardrobe mm-hmm. and then later that book he's like the high king yeah these are children who are running a nation mm-hmm. and yes sometimes i'm like oh maybe we should have younger people run the nation instead of like octogenarians yeah but you know it's still a lot of weight to put on a kid even if they're a teenager or in their young 20s depending on how like how you interpret the books yeah but um yeah they'd be a teenager um just the the weight i guess i'm just overwhelmed by the weight that would be put on their shoulders Mm -hmm. as monarchs even if they were adults they would still be weighed down by that and then to go back to being a kid and to have all of that pressure and i'm sure some anxiety maybe some depression Mm -hmm. just that comes with that yeah and then to be like not taken seriously like we don't have any interaction with the parents about like narnia we don't see Peter doesn't go up to them and say, hey, remember when I was hiking? And they're like, yeah, I remember when you were hiking, because they have no clue. Yeah. The only person they tell is Diggory, I mean, the professor. Um, And he has a different experience with Narnia, and he can't quite understand what they've gone through. Yeah. So, I don't know, just that, that huge weight on their shoulders of living an entire life and then having to do it all over again Mm -hmm. in a different world. That's crazy. That's so intense. Yeah. And, like, specifically, what really kind of makes me the most, like, maybe not uncomfortable isn't the right word, but, like, curious, I guess, is, like, Hmm. Susan's multiple, like, suitors and engagements that she had throughout her reign in Narnia which were almost all like and even i'm pretty sure even in the horse and his boy a big part Uh, of the of the plot that gets um shasta and uh what's his name corin core core yeah yeah to like like get started on their adventures is that they pretend like susan has been requested like to marry some guy Mm -hmm. from tashban and so their whole thing is like she's gonna pretend to accept his hand in marriage and then they're gonna throw this big party and then they're gonna escape and she talks about how like he's not he's kind of a creep and like he's he's not someone she really wants to be around and the fact that like it says that she had many many suitors and many like people were like falling in love with her and wanted her as just like like it makes me very uncomfortable and she had to go through that in narnia where she was under the protection of being a queen yeah and then she had to go back to be a 14 year old girl in england where she probably had to experience a lot of that stuff again but she didn't have that protection of status she was just a girl (laughs) right just a kid and so it's again like again it's like they're the trauma that they would have had just from everything yes is yeah real (laughs) and like i it it bugs me that 
I mean, I, I understand why C.S. Lewis didn't talk about it, um, but it mm. bugs me that even now as we're getting more, like, media, people still aren't really talking about it. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. I had I have enough trauma from being a teenager once. Right. I don't want to ever do it again, and I'm glad I don't ever have to. <laughs> I think my biggest thing was just at the beginning of the book with Lucy as the observer, Peter as the problem solver and Edmund as the pragmatic person like Edmund's always trying to like figure out how do we how are we here mm -hmm. if it's hundreds of years after and Lucy's always like oh I I noticed this and then everyone's like shh Lucy be quiet and then everyone's like oh wait there's something going on here yeah <laughs> yeah that was my that was my biggest like uh literary thing was just the rules that they fall into mm -hmm. And of course, my biggest overall thing was just the internalized racism and the xenophobia and like the, I mean, I mean, obviously in this world, we don't have nymphs and trees and dryads and yeah. all these things going on, but they're very clearly allegories for, for race and for maybe for like sex and for just all these different types of people, because there's not just one way to be a person. Yeah. That was... That was my main focus when I was taking notes. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there was, there's so, so, so much. But yeah, I noticed, I noticed the racism and like, it, like, it's very similar to like, like how Cass, especially when like Miraz and Caspian have that quick little conversation, there's so much in there um, mm. where it's like, it's like whitewashing history. And what do we do with that? And, like, the pressure, or not the pressure, but, like, if you're someone who's really interested in finding out what really happened, and then, like, everyone else is telling you to, like, no, this is what we have, this is what we learn. It's, yes. like, it's it's the erasure of truth, in a sense. Yes, definitely. Um, And that's, like, really, really big throughout that like like chapters four to seven that's like one of the main things i saw and then i also noticed like the relationship between miraz and caspian to me is like it it read as like almost a conversation between like toxic masculinity and the opposite of that i don't know if there's a term yeah. for that because I mean, there's just innocent yeah because like because caspian is like getting all excited and talking about narnia oh. to his uncle and then his uncle gets mad at him and is and starts like yelling at him and then caspian starts crying and miraz's immediate thing is like stop that you're too old for that like um, and he shakes him. he cry. like he like grabs him by the shoulders and shakes him and then you have kind of a slight contrast to that just like two pages later when the professor goes to wake up caspian and it's described mm -hmm. as he like gently shakes him and i yes. just felt like there was such a big like that to me was like one of the most obvious contrasts just with the mm -hmm. wording and the fact that these are like the two the seemingly the only like two um like major male role models in his life and they're so yeah. like they're polar opposites 
Yes. And we obviously see that in the end, his relationship with Miraz dies. <laughs> um, right. He runs away. <laughs> there's a battle. And Caspian is on the side of the Narnians. So, I don't mm -hmm. know. I found that really interesting. Yeah, and then, like what you were saying with the trees, there's a specific quote... In my book, it's on page 76, but I wrote down the impact of the industrialization of the Telmarines on the Dryads and the Naiads is really symbolic yeah. of um, the impact that we have on the environment and the suppression. Oh, that's such a good point. And the suppression of cultures. So, no, said Truffle Hunter, we have no power over them. Since the humans came into the land, felling forests and defiling streams, the dryads and naiads have sunk into a deep sleep. Who knows if they will ever stir again? And that is a great loss on our side. Wow. Yeah, I know, like, he's reasonably, he's talking about, like, oh, we won't have the dryads and naiads to fight for us. But mm -hmm. at the same time, there's much deeper meaning. Yeah. It just reminds me of indigenous cultures and how global warming is like flooding the world, the earth, yeah. the world, and yeah. um, people aren't like like there's streams that people have have built their entire lives around, and then they're drying up, and you can't. Yeah, I mean you can't you can't use the stream if it's dried up. You yeah. Can't, yeah. It's crazy, like all this stuff going on. And just and like, where I mean, yeah. Yeah, and just like that line where he says who knows if they will ever stir again is kind of like yeah. it it carries that weight where you're we're now starting to hear like we're reaching the point where like we're beyond stopping anything yeah of no return yeah and so like we don't know if things will ever get back to normal again because we haven't done enough to like take care of the natural world and yes it's very sad it's really sad it's, it's so awful. sad just the fact that we've destroyed the the good earth that we were given that we were allowed to live on you know yeah it's very much like narnia because the telmarines is it the telmarines yeah yeah the tangerines they all, tangerines <laughs> yes those guys <laughs> as hope once referred them to them as that's so funny <laughs> yes the the telmarines weren't ever like they weren't like N narnia's natural inhabitants mm -hmm. they came in they kind of invaded it even if they didn't mean to yeah no i have oh there's a quote on that too where sorry keep talking while i find this okay but, yeah i was just gonna yeah. say they invaded even if they didn't mean to and they used up all the natural resources and that's very much like colonialism in my mind yes like, indigenous people know what they're doing when they're farming their land or whatever like mm -hmm. they know what they're doing they know how to take care of their land mm -hmm. for the most part and then we come in and we're like "Ooh, more resources that's for me yeah yeah no there's literally literally in my notes i have written down imperialism and colonialism of telmarines on narnia on pages 41 and 42 where oh. cornelius is talking to caspian about um the history of the Telmarines in Narnia. And it says, and this again is like, like the whitewashing of history mm -hmm. in a sense where like uh, Caspian says, he was very surprised to learn that the Royal family were newcomers in the country. 
Um, and then the professor goes on to say, it was your highness's ancestor, Caspian I, who first conquered Narnia and made it his kingdom. It was he who brought all your nation into the country. You are not native Narnians at all. You are Telmarines. This, th that is, you all come from the land of Telmar far beyond the western mountain. That is why Caspian I is called Caspian the Conqueror. So it's literally like just i just the visual of like cornelius being like oh no you guys aren't native here at all and caspian being like what i have never heard this before is mm. such it's like a daily reality for so yes. many people like i don't even remember ever explicitly being told like like we're not like like other people can like trace their ancestors back for generations and decades in the country that they were born in. And like my family, or like most white people, all white people in America, none of them, mm -hmm. none of their ancestors were native to America. Like that's just, and that's not something that's talked about enough. Right. Yeah, I think the first time I saw, like, we are standing on stolen land was on social media. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. This is my home. This is where I grew up. This is this is my home. I'm not stealing from anyone. Yeah. And it's hard because it's not me. I'm not the one who's like, oh, I'm going to do some horrible, horrible things. But I am carrying on the tradition. Yeah. I'm not yeah. doing anything to fix what has been done in the past. Yeah. And that is maybe the hardest part because I want so badly to be innocent of racism and things. But I'm not. But yeah. 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 And it's especially like even with things like the celebration of Thanksgiving. Exactly. Where it's like I think even like this year might have even been the first year where I was like, I don't know if this is something we should really be celebrating. Yes. Because like up until recently where where I've been able to like take my education more into my own hands and really dive into things, I just didn't know the background of right. of um like that whole relationship. And exactly. It's we I we really need to stop putting teaching people false history. Because it's creating a false narrative, and it's going to create... I mean, it's really... We're just creating a future based on lies, really, and racism, yeah. and the suppression and genocide of multiple different people groups. Yeah, that reminds me of three things. First one, uh, I just have to say, like, the, the people who say, go back to your own country if you don't like America. Oh my gosh who aren't going back to their own countries right because they think america is their country but none of them are native it's americans like, go back to ireland or england yes. or germany or holland or yes one of those come on yeah and... i mean like even even in my own family just going back three different three generations we have german irish portuguese italian and scottish yeah. and canadian so like or like the videos that you see of people being like like people freaking out at people speaking spanish and they're like speak oh. spanish you're in america where it's like like i really liked how um dr hill our lovely 
worldviews slash U.S. history teacher taught (laughs) was like the idea of America as like a melting pot or like gumbo. He specifically used gumbo (laughs) as like an allegory because like it's just this giant big melting pot of so many different things. So and like I think that's really beautiful and it's really sad that that isn't celebrated more. Yeah. Because, I mean, American culture is the fact that we have a diverse culture. That is, diversity is American culture. Exactly. It is American culture. And it's not appreciated, it's not celebrated, and it's not widely talked about, at least among white people. Which is... It's I it's really unfortunate and it's really sad and I'm glad that like slowly things you can kind of notice things are starting to change. Thanks social media has helped bring more awareness to a lot of things, but systematically speaking, it's still so fucked up. Is it's so, it's yeah yeah yeah. I was thinking of that because I I was thinking of the same thing because Dr. Hill also refers to Canada as a mosaic instead of a melting pot. Yeah. I thought was fascinating because um instead of it just being like we take all of your cultures and we squish them into one new culture it's we take all of your cultures and we make them a beautiful pattern and we make them stand out and we see how your pattern your culture uh, affects my culture and how they can be beautiful together instead of like I just I love that yeah the the mosaic metaphor that's just that's beautiful I feel like I need to educate myself a lot more. I think I've been working on that, but I definitely need to keep doing it. Yeah, definitely being outside of the education system a little bit more. I mean, we're both still kind of in college, but Mm -hmm. like, it's being, (laughs) adulting isn't fun, but being an adult is awesome because you get to learn whatever the heck you want. And sometimes it's like sad because like you have to learn about sad things being an adult, but it's also important. Yeah and it's so important yeah and that brings me to my next thing that i was going to say about the um imperialism and the colonialism and all that um colonization i was just remembering like a tumblr post of course it's a tumblr post but a tumblr <laughs> post that i saw years ago um and it was like maybe it wasn't years maybe it was months but still it said it was like a picture of a textbook for a kindergarten not a kindergartner but like an elementary school student and it said it was talking about the Trail of Tears, and it said the Native Americans agreed to move, and that is not what happened at all. Yeah, no. So that whitewashing of culture, that like, oh yes, we didn't torture these people; they just agreed to move. Yeah, that's just shocking, and it's that is what happened. What happened in- no, it's not at all. Yeah, it's not at all what happened. But in Prince Caspian, they're like, those people didn't even exist, and if they did exist, they went away on their own. Yeah, like they're extinct. They're dead. They're yeah yeah we didn't do anything though we we're the good guys yeah there's even like like outright denial at the existence of animals because like miraz specifically says like there's no such thing as aslan and there's no such thing as lions where it's like you live in a wooded region and like you don't think lions are real okay (laughs) and there's literally lions in the forest like when Lucy spots Aslan, and then they're like, "Oh, it was just a lion." There's yeah, literally there's lions. There's literally right there. lions. I mean, like you can't just pretend they don't exist. You could. That's be. That's like being like, "Dad, where does milk come from?" I don't know. Cows aren't real. 
<laughs> you could just go outside and find a cow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's ridiculous, but at the same time it's like so saddening because that's what people are like, especially with like queer people, LGBTQ plus people. They're oh, like yeah. those don't exist. Or yeah. if they do, they're just doing that for attention. Yeah. And even my friend. And even within the community like there's so much bi erasure and ace erasure and it's it's like i think at least in my experience i've seen it more with um the ace like ace erasure because Mm -hmm. like of such a big part of the movement and trying to like raise awareness and be like being queer is like a normal thing and like we can exist and not be like fighting all the time but so much about it is like fighting for the right to like be like a sexual person with whoever you are attracted to regardless and asexuality is like the absence of that and so it's there's just like oh you don't ever want to have sex with anyone at all okay you're not part of the community yeah yeah that okay i'm gonna list my identity real quick as a polyamorous, aspec, non-binary, trans, queer person. Yes. I feel like I've been erased in a lot of different ways because that is a lot of different identities that are allowed to be erased. Not allowed to be erased, but that can be erased. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously, I mean, queer is just, a, it's usually an umbrella term, but yeah, it's a term sure. I use to describe my sexuality. So that that's erased a lot non-binary people are erased a lot trans mm-hmm. people are a little more spoken about but usually like it's like usually it's one gender to another gender yeah one sex to another sex instead of just like i'm non-binary and i'm floating in the middle of a cloud of a nebula of gender <laughs> i mean it's i don't know yeah it's just so easy to erase because people don't talk about it mm-hmm. it's so bad i don't like being erased i know <laughs> And like, but yes, and like the sad, like, how do I, how do I phrase this? Like, we've, we've both experienced being erased based on something that we can't change, just like how we are born. Um, but like, for it's something, even though it sucks, it's something we can't hide. Yes. Whereas something like your race is not something that you can hide, at least not very easily. Sure. <laughs> I know right. there are some people who are like white passing or um, just yeah. like have lighter skin, but like are um, their family are, are all like people of color. And like that is, it's not fun, but it's in some ways like. I don't know what I'm trying to say. We can hide if we need to. Yes. And other people can't. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've always so back when I identified as bi, I I felt so so ashamed of myself because I was like, I'm straight passing and these other people aren't. Like a lesbian either has to go completely against her wishes yeah. or she has to like like she can't be she has to pretend to be straight whereas i could i could date a man or a woman now or whoever because now i'm now i'm weird but you know (laughs) (laughs) but at the time i identified as a woman so i could date a man and i could appear to be straight yeah so 
and then it just that just compounds more and more when you realize like sexuality while incredibly important and intrinsic to human nature whether or not that's like like that could be polyamory or that could be lesbian gay asexual bisexual all these different things that is still hideable yeah whereas the way you look like many disabilities are not hideable Mm -hmm. many um like there's colorism there's racism like even within racism there's colorism so you can there's the sliding spectrum of like how how dark your skin appears and then like how you're judged for that like you can't you can't hide those things yeah and so i don't know like that's just heartbreaking the fact that we have to well we don't have to but like the how for years we did uh mm-hmm. judge people based on that and we still do of course yeah i don't know i don't know what to say it's just it's so heartbreaking that people were forced and still are forced to experience life in a different way like not in their their best they can't live their best life you know yeah because people are looking at them and saying you're different than me Mm -hmm. and that means that you're less than me yeah and because of systems that have been in place for hundreds of years like even when people aren't intentionally doing that yes there is there's like it is so easy uh, I don't know if that's a good way to say it, but like it's so easy to accidentally be racist. Yeah, know. no, I get what you mean. Yeah, like because this is the sidewalk that was built for me, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna stay on the sidewalk. Yeah, you have to make a conscious choice to step off the sidewalk every time. Yeah, even though that was a bad metaphor because you're supposed to stay on the sidewalk, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but have you heard like the elevator theory? Sounds familiar, but I don't. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's actually called the elevator theory, but like the idea is someone builds a house and this person hates disabled people. So they don't build any ramps. They don't build any elevators. Everything is stairs. Mm. And so this is, of course, speaking about a disabled person in a wheelchair, not just any disabled person, but that, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and so years down the line, their child inherits the house or something. And this person doesn't hate disabled people. Mm-hmm. But without consciously making the choice to let disabled people in to build ramps and build elevators, mm-hmm. it's as if they it's as if they hate disabled people because they aren't making the choice to let them in. Yeah. And I actually discussed this with my grandpa once, and he said, "Well, if I, I he doesn't have, of course, any ramps to his house because mm-hmm. he built it years and years ago, and he doesn't have a ramp to his house, you know." Yeah. Um, yeah. But he does have now friends who can't walk correctly. Mm-hmm. Like they can't walk in the way that they were they used to walk. Um, and so he was saying if that ever happens, he would just go out and help the person. And that works for a short while short for a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Because community does build up like community builds up each other. And this is like my own addition to the theory because I really liked how my grandpa explained it, yeah. even though Usually my grandpa is not based, like don't listen to him most of the time. (laughs) But I liked what he was saying here because he was like, if somebody was disabled and came to my house, I would simply help them. And that works when it's one or two people. Yeah. But when it's all the disabled community trying to access a space that has, is supposed to be for everyone. Yeah. Of course your house is supposed to be for everyone, but this is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't work. You can't go out and help every single disabled person out there walk up the steps. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just, 
the community is an important part yeah. of it because you have to be able to help mm -hmm. and to be intentional but at the same time you have to restructure everything just yeah. to be able to make things equal yeah well it's yeah. like you and i talked about something similar a while ago where i was like like you and i who mm -hmm. have functioning legs and can walk and run and use stairs can also walk up a ramp or stand in an elevator right whereas someone who requires mobility aids might not be able to and so like and then you can even take this analogy into like a school system where for example like one in one out of every five children has in a classroom has dyslexia and i think the number is even smaller for just like learning disability in general so like and there are things there are things you can do in a school and in a classroom that would make it easier for the kids with learning disabilities and would like the people without learning disabilities could still learn everything they needed to in the time that they needed to and at the pace that they needed to so literally being accessible or providing accessibility harms zero people right like it might at this stage in the universe <laughs> and where the earth is and where systems are it would take a lot of effort to set up but like mm -hmm. once it was set up or even just like the act of setting it up literally hurts nobody people yes. without uh any type of disability are have like little to no impact on them at all and people with disabilities are then like included more included into the community and are like less likely huh. to be seen as abnormal or as outcasts or as unteachable um yeah so like i don't know be accessible be kind <laughs> be kind if that you can is like the biggest thing if you can build a ramp on your house because if you have functioning legs you can walk up a ramp <laughs> yes um yeah grandpa yeah, gosh <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it reminds me like the autistic community is the one that popularized like fidget spinners and weighted blankets and yeah. all those sort of things and then now quote unquote normal people quote unquote yeah. i'm not saying people yeah yeah you get what i'm saying do it but emphasis um, on the air quotes <laughs> emphasis on the air quotes but now people are like oh look at this weighted blanket it's so comforting i really like it mm -hmm. i came up with this and so yeah you're completely not you but people are completely erasing the autistic community yeah from things that were invented for them yeah or even so, like like you were saying like fidget spinners or like fidget toys that were mm -hmm. made to be able to help people with autism or with adhd um like they became so popular and so and like among people who didn't need them um mm -hmm. that like fidget spinners were then banned from classrooms and yes. there are certain like fidget toys that if they make any kind of sound, they're banned from the classrooms because other kids can't focus. But it didn't become an issue until neurotypical people made it a huge trend and made it a huge thing. And now it's like yeah. not accessible to anybody. Thank you so much for listening in on this week's episode of Books in the Corner. 
To find out more about the books that me and my friends read as kids, you can listen to any previous episodes on the Anchor website, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye! Okay, um, (laughs) just quick, like, fun little things. I love the bulgy bears. I want to be friends with them. I also feel so bad for the giant who oh <laughs> who what's his name something with a what is his name I I I, I want to say Wimbledon I know it's not Wimbledon that's not it <laughs> it's something with a W though um the poor giant who just like messed everything up and then and then he Wimble like weather Wimble weather yeah and then he, like, went away to be on his own and just let himself be sad, and then he messed more things up. <laughs> I. I feel so bad. Um, I love that, like, Cornelius and Reepicheep were instant friends, and I want a fan film about them and their shenanigans, because... <laughs> yes, please! I feel like that would be hilarious. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Um, well, and Cornelius is in uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? Uh, no, he's in Caspian. He's... I thought he was in both. Doesn't he, like, really old and he has, like, a trumpet for his ear? No, that's Caspian. That's Caspian? That's Caspian. Oh, wait, no. Who am I? I know what you're talking about. That's, um, I was thinking Caspian in Silver Chair, but, uh. Oh, I... is it, What's is it Trumpkin? Oh, it might be Trumpkin. It might be Trumpkin. But, like, um... No. I actually... I, I It's been a while since I read The Dawn Treader. So I can really only yeah, think too. in movie form right now. He's <laughs> not in the movie. Um... For Dawn Treader. He might... Yeah. I know, I know someone is mentioned in the book. But mm-hmm. I don't think they're on the adventure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember either. I don't know. I'll ha- we'll have to see. That's the um yeah. That's the next next episode. The next episode. Don Treader. <laughs> the one thing that I really liked but also want to make a point out of is that the marginalized communities in in Prince Caspian um well in just Caspian. Yeah. Yeah. Um in um Caspian they accepted Caspian right away yeah and that isn't like necessary like Mm -hmm. marginalized community communities don't need to cater to the attention or like they don't need to cater to the non-marginalized communities Mm -hmm. women don't need to cater to men and they don't need to say like when men are like oh you just hate me because I'm a man that women don't be like no I love you you're Mm -hmm. amazing men I don't hate men it is not the responsibility of marginalized communities to make non-marginalized communities feel comfortable. Yes. And I know that's not exactly what they do in the book because obviously there's an entire war fought between the non-marginalized communities and the marginalized communities, mm-hmm. but they accept Caspian so quickly as their leader. And yeah. I just want to wanted to point out like that is not how it always goes and that is not how it has to go. Yeah. Yeah. And um I will say however that I think Caspian is a good example of how people who are not people of color should behave. Yes. Um, 
because like when he's um on the tower with Cornelius and Cornelius tells him he's a dwarf uh Caspian's first response is he feels bad and he apologizes mm -hmm. he says I'm sorry I but I wasn't the one to do any of those things but then he immediately like he, it would have been so easy for him I mean maybe not so easy because Miraz was going to kill him but like he could have like created an uprising among the Telmarines because I'm sure that there were people yeah. who would have supported him and instead he sought out the Narnians and yes that wasn't the comfortable thing to do but Definitely. it was the right thing to do. Um, it was the right thing to do. And in doing that, he he brought back the Narnians. He created peace. He became Caspian the Navigator, which was, in my opinion, is also a really important thing because since like Aslan came from the sea, and that's why the Telmarines hated the sea, so he brought back mm. navigation, and he he like created this like entire inclusive thing. Like, that is a really good example for how I think we should behave in regards to racism. Like, I'm really sorry this oh. happened. Even though it was not directly my fault, I am going to do my best to try and fix the problem. Yes, I will not be complicit in this. Yes. Yeah. I do want to just say real quick not regarding like not related to racism at all mm -hmm. you just said aslan came from the sea and that reminds me in the bible there says there will be no sea in heaven because in hebrew culture the sea is dangerous and chaotic oh but if aslan comes from the sea and aslan is good but he is not safe mm -hmm. i don't know that just that was really interesting to me that just popped out to me as you said that yeah and i mean like the sea itself is not safe yes but like is it good <laughs> i was gonna say right. it's good but like is it i mean like we like it get food from it and it allowed for like the first like modes of transportation to like occur yeah. and yeah um which unfortunately also meant colonialism but you know <laughs> yeah but at the same time, like, sea is not inherently good or bad, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's important. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a lot of resources come from the sea, but a lot, of, a lot of danger comes from the sea. Yeah. I was just interested, like, <sighs> I mean, C.S. Lewis would have known that the sea was, like, a dangerous thing in mm -hmm. Hebrew mythology. Yeah. So he would have known saying that Aslan comes from the sea would be, like, a big thing, like, a big deal. Yeah. So that just that's just really interesting to me because so remember how at BFA the uh the song or at BFCF the song um the overwhelming reckless love of God. Oh God yeah, banned. it got banned. <laughs> yeah. Which is its own thing because we can discuss the theology of that uh, for a thousand a years. A different but, time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a different time. <laughs> but it just reminds me of that because the reckless love of God in my mind is like a chaotic I'm not giving you up for anything kind of love. Yeah. And so, like, I know that God brings order out of the chaos of the world. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, can't God be a little chaotic in in their, uh, I'm just using the they, them pronouns for God, because God because is three and one. God is, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, diversity <laughs> win. God uses they them pronouns. Hey. <laughs> but um, yeah, couldn't they be a little chaotic in their love? Like, couldn't they? Like, so God is justice. God is love at the same time, yeah. and love is inherently not like okay. This is this is really hard to describe what's going on in my brain right now. It's but okay. <laughs> you've got the justice of God, mm -hmm. which is the order of God, and the love of God, which is the chaos of God. Mm -hmm. Don't they come into balance somewhere? Because love and justice do not necessarily collide. Because justice is rules, and you get what you deserve. And love is love, and I will give you something better than what you deserve. Oh, that makes sense. So I don't know. Aslan coming from the sea reminds me of like this this being of chaos mm -hmm. because he is not safe he is not an orderly perfect but he is perfect obviously mm -hmm. but aslan is not safe no. so you can't just expect what you expect to happen yeah i mean literally in this book he turns a bunch of schoolboys into pigs yeah which are then presumably eaten by <laughs> the townspeople um yeah. like that's not I don't know. I don't yeah. know if I'd trust my kids with that. <laughs> right. That's very Greek mythology of C.S. Lewis. It is very Greek mythology oh, of C.S. Lewis. That and, like, <laughs> doesn't Selenus, um, yeah. and, like, a weird version of, like, Dionysus, don't they also, again, I didn't read, I didn't get, have time to read the second half of the book today. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, lots yeah. of... This, I think, oh, I want to say this earlier as well. This book is also, the movie Prince Caspian is, mm -hmm. I believe, out of all of the Narnia movies, the one that takes the most direct quotes from the book. Yeah, I didn't notice there were a lot of direct quotes. A lot of direct quotes. And so, like, I don't know. Even though um, a lot of that movie came from how... Uh, the director Andrew imagined imagined uh, the book when he was a kid. Um, mm -hmm. Like to me, it, it feels the most accurate in a way <laughs> of all the movies. Mm -hmm. I I will say, like, I actually I do think the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is like the best book to movie adaptation to ever exist. Um, but I don't know, there's something about, I think Caspian really brings in the humanity of the characters. The yes. first movie is really focused on the magic, which is awesome and great, and it's a great movie. But um, I, I love that Caspian really focuses on the emotions, especially from, like, Peter and Susan, because it's their last time in Narnia and the conflicting emotions they have with that. And then with Lucy, how she's dealing, she's figuring out how to um, be assertive in her beliefs and not just yeah. listen to her older siblings and do hey. what they tell her to do. And Edmund, I think a, a lot, pretty much all of Edmund's arc is in the first book um because Ryan. throughout the rest of the series he's kind of there to just like be a reminder of like he was bad and now he's good um mm -hmm. but he's also a silent supporter i feel like of lucy in a lot of ways and that's not really talked about 
in this book. I think this book, what I thought was really cool, how a lot of the dialogue, especially in the first eight chapters, um, almost all of the dialogue is between Peter and Lucy. Yes. And so it kind of establishes their relationship a bit more, and that is something that gets carried over into the film, which is great. But I also mm-hmm. love how the film um, did focus a bit on Edmund still kind of feeling ashamed of what happened and feeling responsible because that's not again in the books like he it the topic or like what happened to him does get brought up a few times but it's always in the sense of like i was a traitor but i mended and like you can too whereas in the Mm -hmm. movie he's still dealing with the fact of like i betrayed my siblings to a literal witch and i hurt them and i hurt a lot of people by doing that so i love that line and the way skander keens i love skander keens but the way skander keens performs the line it's when they're looking over the gorge and lucy is like i swear i saw aslan he was right over there he wanted us to follow him and everyone's kind of trying to decide what to do and Edmund says, the last time I didn't listen to Lucy, I ended up looking really stupid. And there's, like, this moment of silence, and, the like, his body language and his expression is, like, you can see, like, he carries so much shame. And then the response yeah. of Lucy and her body language and her facial expression is one of, like, 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 empathy and understanding and almost, like, guilt that her brother still feels shame over what happened. And then Peter and Susan are just like, nah, we're going to go the other way. So I I really appreciate that. I like how the movie focuses a lot on the relationship Lucy has with both of her brothers. I wish mm-hmm. Edmund's emotional all of them really but mainly i think edmund and susan are the two that i really wish we got more of what their emotions were throughout the series um i but i i do i mean i forgot what i was gonna say i had such a good point and then i forgot (laughs) but um yeah i don't know it's i'm i'm here for the emotional trauma (laughs) give me some emotional support for these poor children yes honestly yeah well and especially with susan being the one oh sorry i was just gonna say i love them so much but yes yeah but especially with susan then like she then denies narnia almost Mm -hmm. i would just love to see the process there and of course c.s lewis said like this is a much more grown-up book than i would like to write like you Mm -hmm. guys can write this yeah which is like hey oh fan fiction time yeah let's go (laughs) (laughs) but um I guess just the process there that I I would love to see her emotions while she's in Narnia and to see her emotions while she's not in Narnia and like, like how can you pretend that an entire lifetime that you've lived didn't happen? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that, that is, that's something I wanted to say was a lot of Susan's dialogue in the first few chapters. Like she seems, she has a sense of like dread almost about her like when she's talking about like when they're trying to figure out where they are and she 
kind of talks about she's like oh yeah like narnia did look like this she's described as having like a sing-songy far-off dreamy voice and like yes. very kind of quiet and internalized and then she's the one who finds the chess piece yeah. and it describes her like she looks really pale her voice is like really like kind of quiet and shaky and uneasy and then when and this is something different from the movie when they see the telmarines trying to drown trumpkin she doesn't hesitate she immediately shoots um yeah and peter turns around and looks at her and she looks pale and like shaky like she's not but she like didn't hesitate and so a lot and again the the that like uneasiness or like insecurity is not something that Susan shows externally in the movies. It's all very internalized. Um, mm -hmm. But she, like, kind of pushes it aside to get the job done. Right. Um, and really only has, like, brief moments of emotion with, like, Lucy around the campfire and then when she and Peter are talking to Aslan at the end and she's crying, um, which mm -hmm. always breaks my heart. But um, yeah. in... I was really surprised because I didn't remember this at all, like how shaken she seems throughout this entire book. And I yeah. I personally, I know a lot of people have different opinions of Susan. I personally do not believe that she denied Narnia for the rest of her life. Um, But also, like, again, thinking about, like, wanting to know what they went through... At the end of the last battle, I mean, Susan's entire family died. Her yeah. entire parents, family. Her siblings. Her parents, her siblings. The professor that watched her when she was young. The professor, like, they all died. Yeah. And so, like, she is not having a good time. <laughs> and I know, like, I had a conversation with someone who, like, from their perspective, when Narnia ended, our world ended as well. So she, like, never goes to Narnia because everyone is dead. But, like, I don't, I don't know. I think there's a lot of growth that comes from grief if you let it happen. And I yeah. really feel like the death of her entire family and the professor um, and her cousin, Eustace, died yeah, as well. Um, yeah. So, like... Like, even, like, I really, I wish C.S. Lewis had written that book. I know, like, he didn't want to, but, like, I wish he had. I really wish he had. Yeah, yeah. and I get that it might be reflective of himself, because people, some people say C.S. Lewis was starting to leave the faith when he passed away. Mm -hmm. Some people say he was just finding a new way to look at the faith, like, mm -hmm whatever like there was a change when he was coming to the end of his life yeah and i wonder how much of susan and he like i wonder how much he reflects in that oh yeah but yeah. like maybe he just couldn't write the conclusion because he hadn't lived it yet yeah and i understand that he didn't want to but i don't know it would be nice to have a canon explanation yeah where she has a happily ever after yeah because her life has been hard enough yeah for sure also, she's a woman growing up in the 40s. <laughs> exactly. Not yeah. an easy time. Do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I don't up? think so. Yeah. I love how um, 
I feel like <laughs> the conversations between Truffle Hunter, Trumpkin, and Nickabrick are like when that one conspiracy theorist uncle starts talking at a family reunion and everyone else <laughs> is like, shh, stop. <laughs> yes. That just makes me think of like um different like so back to the minorities talk. When you are marginalized for so long, mm-hmm. you begin to look for any way to rise up out of that. Yeah. And I think it was, I don't remember who said it, maybe it was Malcolm X, but someone said, uh, nonviolence is the voice of the oppressed, but only in like, el- like not in elitism. Like it's a, it's an honor to be able to be nonviolent. Mm-hmm. But MLK, MLK Jr. of course was nonviolent. That was his whole thing about protesting. Yeah. But Malcolm X was a lot less like pacifist. Yeah type stuff so um like yeah it, to be able to be nonviolent, maybe it was gandhi actually who said that because he was also a nonviolent person but um, he did other he was he did also horrible things he did yeah not, a, not he a, preached nonviolence. yes so i don't remember which one said that but nonviolence is the voice of the oppressed but it also is the voice that um you have to be like enabled to use it. Like mm-hmm. they'll only listen to your nonviolence if you're already in a position of some privilege. You yeah. Know? That's just that was just an interesting thing to me because I if I were in Nickerbrick's position, I don't know if I would have actually I might have chosen the same path that he did. Yeah. Because that is first off, you haven't he hasn't lived through the White Witch's reign, so he mm-hmm. doesn't know that it's so horrible. Yeah. And it's all it's all just stories now. Yeah. And it's a way out of this oppression that he's living in. Yeah. So I don't know if I were in his situation, I, I can condemn him from my situation, but if I were in his situation, I might very well do the same. And yeah, and honestly, I mean, that is like, that's just humanity <laughs> because yeah. I think anytime we're in a situation where we're silenced or erased or anything like, or like mistreated in general, we're kind of given a choice in how we fight back against it yeah whether it be not at all or whether it be nonviolent, or whether it's with violence and so Mm -hmm. this book i think really did kind of cover all sides of that in a sense yeah um yeah i think i mean i think all of the like the way like caspian's response is like the ideal response and nickabrick's response is the typical response and so in that way he's he's easier to empathize with i mean it's kind of like even edmund's behavior in line the witch in the wardrobe is like like so many the only like i feel like one out of a hundred people would be like now nah, I'm good. I'm gonna go chill with my siblings instead of be like, oh no, I want to be king and I want to have power and I want all these things. So like, I think they're both there to show like the two ways we can go, and they're both responses that we can really empathize with. I mean, as a Christian philosopher, not not me a Christian philosopher, as yeah. Lewis, Lewis a <laughs> Christian philosopher, as a as a as a Christian as philosopher. an eighteen year old Christian <laughs> philosopher. Yes, 
yeah, uh, Lewis must have, like, a lot of practice capturing the human experience, because I don't know if he, like, was an original sin person, or if he, like, I don't know what exactly to believe. I haven't done enough research into that. Yeah. But he must have had a lot of knowledge of, like, the Christian worldview of the human experience. And so he did a really good job of capturing that, even in, I mean, in all of his books, I think. But, yeah, I just think Nickerbrick's response is the response of the desperate. And I think it's so easy to be desperate in these days because it feels like everything's going to shit. Mm -hmm. And it kind of is. It kind of is. The world is on fire. (laughs) But I guess we just have to remember that, like, for those of us who are Christians, we can remember that one day it will all be made right. And Mm -hmm. for those of us who aren't, I don't know what to say. (laughs) No, um, that was a joke, kind of. For those of us who aren't, we know that in the end and the story is good always wins Mm -hmm. and we there's a quote by a rabbi that i love and he says um do good now like it the problem is not mine to solve Mm -hmm. but it is mine to help fix yeah i don't have to take up all of the world's problems and bear them on my shoulders but if i can take some then that is my job that is my duty this is so fun. Okay. This is great. This is so much fun. Thank you so, so, so much for talking about this with me. Um, I hope you enjoyed yourself. Definitely <laughs> did. And I hope, yeah, if you ever want to come back on the podcast and talk about anything else, I would be happy to have you. This was so much fun. I'd be thrilled. Thank you so <laughs> much. <laughs>